one of the things, John, I feel very strongly about is giving our children a good uh, understanding of the natural world. And I, and I know you agree. I have four daughters. Uh, you have two children. And my oldest is now 26 and the youngest is 20 years or a bit younger. But my wife and I have traveled a lot with them over the years. And I've always felt that was very important. In fact, we're going to South Africa this Christmas, and no doubt I'll podcast from the wilds while I'm there. But I'd like to remember a trip that we did about 15 years ago. We spent several days getting to know beautiful Nova Scotia in Canada. And I was determined to give them their first experience of whale watching in the Bay of Fundy. Now, you'll know, John, because you've been there, that is the bay surrounded by southern Nova Scotia, uh, on one side and New Brunswick in Canada on the other and Maine in the United States. So I, I remember us driving right to the southern end of Nova Scotia to go on this whale watching expedition. And when I asked them about this trip nowadays, the thing that they remember first isn't the whales, but uh, the fact that it was raining very heavily. And someone suggested that we go to a local thrift store to equip ourselves with waterproofs so we did that and it was actually really good fun but we looked like a very colorful lot uh going to uh, attend some kind of fancy dress uh trip when we got back into the car and that that's one of the things that they giggle about and remember it's funny what children remember i guess my youngest at that stage would have been about five we'd crossed over on a ferry to a place called briar island where you get this boat i was really quite forlorn and depressed because it was an extremely thick fog settling in the bay and along the coast and i thought this boat isn't going to go and i have driven hours to get to this place and um the kids are going to be so um upset and annoyed that that i haven't going to be able to fulfill the promise but uh, to my surprise our our very jolly captain greeted us and said that look we're going to go out uh, the wheels are there the fog will disappear so we put on our jackets and got into the boat and my very distinct memory is of my wife giving me a look uh, as if to say, this is a very small boat that we're taking our children on out into the fog. I'm not sure about this at all. I'm extremely nervous. And I do what I usually do when I get looks like that. I try to just look the other way and be jolly. The boat was incredibly small. There was one other family there and, and on the deck. It was very, very close to the water. It was incredibly safe. I mean, we were all in life jackets, etc., etc., and it had a little dinghy up on its roof. But uh, I guess if if you ask me, um, and I know I'm doing all the talking here, but we'll, we'll get to your experiences in the moment. If you ask me, you know, how would I describe uh, what it was about that trip? I think being with my young children and my wife out on the boat, yes, there were other people there, but it was very easy for me to imagine just me and my family in the middle of nowhere, seemingly, on a boat, in in still flat calm water surrounded by fog not really able to see very much i do have a, a memory of a foghorn from maybe land somewhere in the in the background and then suddenly as we were talking in fact we were drinking hot drinks uh, the most unmistakable noise of a large object breaking water close to us and then this whoosh it was a wheel, obviously, that, that had surfaced, and it, and it was expelling air um, so close to us that, that we were covered in a, a misty, wheel-breath, fishy-smelling kind of fog that, that hit us, followed 
closely by a, a fairly gentle wave which rocked us from side to side, announcing, of course, uh, the first wheel. And, and in fact, the fog did lift quite soon after, and we spent another four hours in the company of part of about of 15 humpback wheels. It was just the most astonishing experience, as it is for anybody, I think, seeing a wheel, certainly from the surface, for, for the very first time. And I'm sure you've, you've witnessed that experience just of seeing your wheel the first time on the surface of the water, John. Yes, you know, uh, when you're talking there, there's a couple of things that come out to me. One is being with your family and, and experiencing something like that. These experiences, when they happen and they're as lovely as that, are so intense that you, like all the moments in your life, want to spend them with your loved ones. And often I'm away filming and I see something and I think, my goodness, my children would like to see that. But of course, you're bringing it to an audience as well. So that's some compensation. Mm. The Bay of Thunder, yes, it's very foggy. Do you know what? I was trying to remember Briar Island and you just reminded me. Uh, where we were working out of. It was Briar Island. We were there for about 40 days. Peter Schoons, who was a wildlife cameraman, one of the best. I was with him for 40 days doing Blue Planet One, a sequence about the Bay of Fundy uh, for the Coasts program. And it was foggy. (laughs) I think out of that 40 days, we must have been in, in the hotel about 25, just waiting for our moment. But we did go out one day when it was foggy, exactly as you say, just like that. And it, it reminds me of some horror film about pirates, you know, where the fog <laughs> is just settling on the water and you can't see anything. You just hear these eerie noises. And of course you do. The whales come up, as you say, and then you hear their blows. You hear, and you hear it from a distance. It was so strong, actually, that we managed to locate the whales in the fog without seeing them, just by their sounds. Yes, I suspect that's what happened to us on that on that first occasion and and one of one of the things that strikes me john when you do get up so close looking at them from the surfaces they they are absolutely enormous and i mean and and i know that the the whales that we were spending times with that day which were humpbacks i mean they're not the biggest creatures but they seem so incredibly large compared to you um in this tiny boat and i mean some of the ki- children were definitely frightened at first the the next thing that strikes you though is that they that this pod were incredibly inquisitive and they came up and, and literally as we were hanging over the end of the boat they were sticking their faces out of the water beside the boat you know, classically covered in in huge big barnacles and scarred and all the rest but you you very much got the distinct impression that they were as interested in us as we were in them yes i think i found that particularly with humpback whales um, we should explain the different types of whales. The humpbacks are the ones with the big uh, pectoral fins, the one on the side by the head, and they're massive, actually, about 15 feet long, their fins. That's how you recognize a humpback, mainly. They're just extraordinary, and they are very intelligent. I saw them hunting there. Uh, they come up, this is when it wasn't foggy, they come up, and all you know about it is fish start jumping out of the water, and you think, that's strange. And then more and more fish start popping out of the water. And suddenly, breaking through the water, there were three humpback whales, like the petals of a tulip. They were all close together. And they had their mouths open. And that's how that particular group was hunting for fish, hunting for herring. Cooperating. Cooperating. 
in different parts of the world, humpback whales do it differently. Some of them make bubble rings in the Antarctic, and some of them perhaps hunt, hunt individually. But, but in the Bay of Fundy, the humpback whales were doing this kind of what I call a tulip petal type thing, not br blowing bubbles at all, but just coming up three at a time close together. Okay, so from observing these stunning creatures at the surface, uh, I want to talk to you about your adventures getting into their world and diving with whales and filming them. And I know that you filmed in Mexico, French Polynesia, the Azores, and incredibly, you and I haven't actually taken the time to discuss those trips. So we're going to do that now. So pin back your ears. Um, yes. Tell well, me it what would it, take a little while to get through uh, uh, 30 years of filming yes, at sea. But uh, so <laughs> here's here's my here's my my first question though. What 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 is it like seeing a whale underwater for the first time? Because I can't imagine myself having the courage to slip into the water with such a big creature. Well, it's awesome. It really is. Um, I, I remember being off the island of Maria, which is um, near Tahiti, and uh, we were filming Humpback Whale Song, the, the males singing, which is awesome in itself. Um, we'd come across a, a male singing, and I remember being in the water nearby, and the power of the song was so vast that my feet were tingling, my chest cavity was vibrating with the song. The water in my mask, you always get a little bit of water at the bottom of your mask, it was bouncing up and down in front of my eyes because of the strength of the song. It was quite extraordinary. But actually, one of my best encounters was accidental. And again, in that same place, we were uh, snorkeling over the reefs, and um, I came up, obviously, for air, and suddenly an, a humpback whale came up right by me too, and I was almost looking it in the eye. And uh, we were both thinking, oh, what's that? <laughs> and and that was an awesome experience. And you stay very, very still, and it just goes by you. What's it like? Can you catch a whale's eye? Can you catch a whale's eye? Yes. I mean, can um, you literally look into a whale's eye and have it stare back and feel that there's some kind of connection? Or is that, uh, is that too romantic a notion? Oi, whale. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, no, it's not too romantic, really. Um, the eyes are, are vast, though, of course, they look like little piggy eyes in, in something that big. I think there's a limit to the size an eye can be, and that's the biggest, one of the biggest mammal eyes in the animal kingdom, which is uh, perhaps about six inches across. And it is definitely looking at you, and it's kind of swiveling a bit. So, yes, it is looking at you, and it's trying to work out what you are. But it's probably also using acoustics to, you know, fire sound through you, and it probably gets a good idea of what you are through that. Actually, another encounter was when we were uh, on scuba gear, and uh, we um, were, you know, you have to be very careful in front of whales, and you have to be very respectful. But we were just in the water stationary, and a mother and calf were coming towards us. And, of course, you have to expel air, and the bubbles went up to the surface. And the mother didn't like that at all. And she veered away with her calf. And I later discovered from a scientist that one of the ways that they understand whether something is big or aggressive underwater is if it's producing a lot of air, because if it's got a lot of air, it must have big lungs, you know, so it must be a big animal. And of course, if you're on scuba gear, you're producing a lot of air. Yes. So maybe I was thinking that um, it, it didn't like me because of that. So you, you know, they're all my all the encounters I've ever had with whales, they've all been individual and all different. 
And just like us, they probably have good days and bad days or days where they don't want to be bothered with anything else or they're hungry. They want to just get on with feeding. But if you find them in a situation where they've been resting and they've probably fed well, then they have time to play with you. Then that's those are the best encounters. And have you had time to, to play with Peel in any of the seas underwater? Well, do you know what? Um, it's not playing, but we were... Let's go back to the Bay of Fundy, where we were specifically trying to film a few different species. And in the Bay of Fundy, the, the most um, well-known species is the right whale, which is a baleen whale. The baleen whales are the ones with, with, which are filter feeders. So as vast as they are, they, they, they don't eat anything large. They filter plankton. And they do that with, with sheets of baleen, which are specialized uh, mouth parts. And they filter out the shrimps and things from the water. Anyway, the right whale is, is so-called because it's um, a slow whale, and the whalers in ancient days called it the right one to catch mm -hmm. because uh, you didn't have to go too fast. Some whales are immensely fast. The blue whale can do perhaps 25 knots, which is huge. You know, some of the, our fastest ships can't do 25 knots. But the right whale is, is just plodding along, so it's easy prey for the ancient whalers. And is it bigger, John, than a uh, um, humpback? No, it, I would say uh, it was a similar sort of size. It's got a much bigger head. The humpback is more slender, um, and it's got a classic sort of whale shape, the right whale. And its, and its mouth, even when it's shut, you can see is like a little, um, there's a kind of scar where its mouth, uh, I guess you'd call them lips almost, it, it goes down all the side of its head. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's the huge mouth, that it, cavernous mouth that it uses to filter feed. And it, as you say, it's covered in barnacles. I, I, I was with uh, our cameraman, Peter Schoons, and we were out on the water in a little rib. And we um, actually we were out in the bay, but we, we were filming from a rib, which was attached to the boat. And that's how we work when we're filming, because you have to get, get um, slightly closer with a rib. You're not allowed to be within certain um, range of whales. There's some very strict um, laws in, in the United States. And uh, quite rightly so, because you, you don't want to harass the animals. So oftentimes we just sit off and see what happens. And we were looking into the distance and there was a petrol fin, the, the side fin uh, of a whale, occasionally coming right out of the water and, and sort of at right angles to the water and standing quite high. We identified it as a, as a right whale. and we, we waited there. And then suddenly underneath us, uh, one minute I was looking at, at the sea and the next minute, I was looking at something that looked a bit like a tennis court or tarmac surface, uh, except it was white and glistening and leathery. Um, and the boat started lifting up out of the water. I thought, heck, that doesn't happen very often. What's going on? And what had happened was a male right whale had surfaced right underneath our boat and it lifted us off the water. And so for a moment, we were actually on the back of a whale. And we were with a very clever scientist who who a guy called Dan Dendanto is very, very good at um, uh, assessing the situation. And he lifted the outboard motor uh, away from the stern, from the back of the, of the boat, because the outboard motor would have been resting on the back of the whale. And um, that would have cut into us. it. Well, mm. it would have cut into it, but it also would have toppled us and we would have just yeah. capsized. And then we started rising, and, and, the, and the boat at one stage was at about 45 degrees to the water, and all the camera gear was sliding back to the, to the stern. And 
you know, you kind of, you, you're kind of doing a double take one, trying to understand what the heck's happened. And I looked at Peter and, and as his several hundred thousand dollars worth of camera gear was falling to the back of the boat, he, uh, he was laughing. He was smiling. He, he was obviously enjoying the situation. And, <laughs> and we, I looked over and then this, and <laughs> I coughed because it was, it was like the worst garlic smell ever. And it was that exactly <laughs> that thing. But I was right. We were right on top of it, and it was around us. It was like being gassed, and um, <laughs> and you could you could almost second guess what the whale was thinking. It was thinking, "Hmm, this doesn't happen very often," you know. And and it, <laughs> and uh, and it was immensely gentle for such a, um, a a big beast. And it slowly, slowly put us back down onto the water, and we were absolutely fine. But um, for a but moment, John, there, uh, you, I was on the back uh, of the uh, whale. It, it, yeah, but it must have been. Come on, it must have been slightly terrifying for a while. Uh, yeah. M- m- the, when we were at forty-five degrees, I was thinking we're all going to go into the water. Um, that bit wasn't so fun. But um, when I realised what had happened, and and the reason it happened, because we're not allowed to to get that near or or harass whales in any way filming. But what had happened, I think, is that that first female that we'd seen with her petrol fins, she was calling in other males. Then other males were, were, were coming towards her. It's actually a mating system that's similar to elephants. The, uh, the female chooses the male. When a male approaches her, she, in an elephant, this is, she starts calling and all the other suitable males in the area come into the female and they, they, the best one will mate her. And, so what I think had happened is that we had accidentally got in the way of one of these incoming males, which was coming yes. towards that female that we were looking at. And it had, it had sort of surfaced as whales have to because they, they're air breathers and, and, and uh, it had surfaced right underneath us, unbeknownst to us. That's so, amazing. I, in fact, I, I, know, I was watching a documentary quite recently on the Southern right wheel which i'm i'm not sure if there are big differences between the southern and the northern but it there, was actually, there isn't actually uh, as far as i know yeah. the only way you can tell the difference apart from the fact they're not in the same place is is uh, through genetics through right. dna sample taken from their yeah. skin well this was a, f- a documentary about the um the the female mating with actually several males over the course of, of several hours and uh, quite graphic detail. I mean, I guess with immense size comes enormous organ size. And it would be remiss of me not to say that the, the, the penis involved was at least nine feet, if not longer. <laughs> and in fact, the, the males with the biggest penis and with the biggest bodies were the ones that were probably going to sire the, the next calf about 12 months later. Yes. Well, I guess you'd need one, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. So just as well, you weren't mistaken for a <laughs> no. female. Well, yes. I mean, do you know what? That's the first time in public I've ever mentioned that story because um, it, it it was something that, um, although I was amazed by it, and it's an extraordinary life experience to have ridden on the back of a whale accidentally, um, I was embarrassed by it as well. But to be honest, we weren't doing anything bad. We were, we were just um, uh, waiting and, uh, and yes. that's what happened. See, the northern right whale is really endangered. Um, there's only a few hundred of them left, and that's because of the extraordinary amount of whaling that went on historically, but also because that's a really busy channel, and there's lots of ships, and the right whale, as we discuss, is slow, and it often gets hit by ships. So uh, it was getting hit so much that their population was diminishing, even the few hundred. And what, the other thing that happens is that they get caught in fishing nets, and 
there is a Canadian um, ship which tries and, and helps them and disentangles them, but they're really having difficulty surviving that that population. Do you mean it's this, the sole purpose of that ship is to go and find whales that have been caught up in nets and to disentangle them? Yes, it is, and also to help whales that are too near uh, fishing fleets and things like that, and and, um, and and warn the fishing fleets. Actually, we discovered on that same trip a fin whale which had a net through its mouth, and it was something that I very much wanted to film because, as in uh, Blue Planet Two, you know, it's a very a moving image and an important image. So I wanted to see if we could film the net inside the mouth of the fin whale. And we came across this whale, fin whale, which was totally emaciated because the, it had a net right through its mouth and it obviously hadn't eaten for, for days or weeks. And the captain we were with, he, he knew how to rescue it. And he also had the equipment on board, which are giant boys. And what you do is you, you go to the whale and you tie these boys onto the net, which is, um, a way to stop the whale because this poor thing is still trying to move. I mean, you're talking about a 45 ton whale, you know, moving at, at five knots. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you try and stop it basically and stop and just stop it. So you can cut the net off it and you put a, a boy on and, and it needs about six of these giant boys before the whale is stopped and it can't dive. And then you can get out and out of the boat and you can go into the water and cut the net off, which is one of the procedures they do. But we'd put two boys onto this and we tied, tied two boys onto it, on the net in its mouth. And it started to descend. And the captain, who was uh, very smart, we'd got the lines to the boys tied off on the stern of the boat. And I have never seen anyone cut a rope so quickly. He just got a knife out from somewhere and just smacked it. So it cut the rope. And, um, the, uh, cause he knew that a 45 ton whale attached take him down 40 foot boat would take us all down so um so he had very good presence of mind and we never unfortunately found that animal again um but uh, so it, you don't it, know if the if the net came off the mouth or not i'm pretty sure the net wouldn't have come off the mouth it had been in it for you know you could yes. see the the uh, vertebrae on it on its back as it as it dived and you could That's see so it sad bit. well it's very sad but I, it also brought home to me you know the reality of it is that we, uh, those poor things are going to starve um, when they get nets in their mouths. I guess it also demonstrates the increasing levels of pollution uh, in the oceans, and that that's fairly well documented nowadays and ringing alarm bells. But have you any other experiences or, or evidence of what's happening to our largest living mammals, the whales, in the oceans as a result of pollution? I think it's a, it's a patchy record, and we... Up until 1986, I think, was the last official whaling that took place in the Azores, although there are some countries doing scientific whaling. But, I mean, we're talking about huge numbers that were, were you know, decimated populations, hundreds of thousands of blue whales, right whales, sperm whales. They were all taken. And actually, because they're such long-lived animals, in fact, the bowhead whale, which lives in the, in the Arctic, that can live for 200 years. And they, they still have memories some of those animals will still have memories of being hunted. And How do we know? Well, you can because of the, their age. They're, 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 we know that they, they, some of them are over 100 years old. So if we only stopped whaling in 1986, they will be wary of, of ships because, they, because yeah. for half their life they were hunted. And actually some of the bowhead whales that I've seen in, in, uh, up in the Arctic, they do behave like that. They're very wary of, of ships. 
So um, their populations have been decimated and they're only just coming back in some places, but it's a very patchy record. And some of the other things that are happening, such as this debris and nets in the water, are actually continuing to destroy some of the local populations like the northern right whales. Although I think I did see some positive things about there being more calves. It's still a, a pretty um, on-edge situation as to whether that population will survive. Have you ever seen a blue whale? Yes. Now, we've we spent a lot of time filming blue whales. And that, of course, is the biggest whale in the world, isn't it? Yes, the blue whale. They say it, uh, 200 feet, forget the tonnage, but I mean, something vast like 80 tons and in fact there may yet be a creature like that still alive but i think those sort of figures are historical however they're still pretty big i mean you, you could um, find one that was at least three quarters of the record and that would make it the biggest creature alive and one of the biggest creatures that has ever lived hmm. so tell us about your experience with the uh, blue wheeled have you seen them many times or just once Oh no, I've seen blue whales many times. We did. I did the uh, blue whales for Blue Planet One. All those shots I directed the uh, opening sequence of Blue Planet One, and uh, you'll see all the um, blue whales in it. And we spent, uh, for example, twenty-five days in Baja, Mexico, in uh, March, following uh, blue whales. I remember we had a scoreboard, and the number of times that we came close enough to film, and the number of times the whales came up and disappeared without being filmed. And they were, the scoreboard was, I think, something like blue whales, 158, humans, three. <laughs> and they, <laughs> so the, what, they're, those they're elusive? Times, those three times were the best where we did manage to get it. So uh, actually, one of the best ways to see whales is from the air. And, and blue whales are particularly blue when you see them from the air and slightly yellow. In fact, another name that the ancient sailors called them was the sulfur bottoms, I think, which is alluding to that slight yellow haze around them. And yeah. sometimes if you're lucky, you'll see their mouth open and then they sort of expand to almost twice their size as their mouth opens and they gulp a, a whole shoal of krill, which is the, these pink shrimps, which is what they mainly eat. And uh, you can also see huge patches of those in, in the water as well. So that gives you a clue that you might see blue whales shortly. And uh, yes, just an awesome animal, amazing animal. You know, so when it spouts, its spout blows 60 feet into the air. I've seen footage of and and marveled at the bravery of cameramen and camera women who go underwater, uh, particularly to film feeding pods of whales. And um, there was one I saw recently where someone is incredibly close to six or seven uh, whales as they're coming up with their mouths completely agape to catch sardines or whatever small fish it, it was there. And you think, you know, you could very easily disappear into the mouth of one of those whales. Um, I, I'm sure it would spit you back out, but it, I, it just strikes me as the most um, uh, dangerous thing to do, to be filming and be set, setting above them on the surface of the waters. They're about to kind of sift like that. Well, of course you could. And, and um, I remember seeing seven fin whales come straight towards me like that. And they're awesome. I mean, they're only slightly smaller than blue whales. In fact, blue whales and fin whales hybridize. They, they have calves, which are mixtures of the both. They are awesome when they come to you, but they are also very aware of you. I remember trying to film a blue whale mother and calf in Baja, California, and we would go into the water very gently and we'd wait for them to come to us. And 
course, we wanted the, sh the shot of a blue whale underwater. First of all, you had to make absolutely no noise. Uh, all the engines had to be off. Uh, all the sonar had to be off. Then you would even be careful about how you slipped into the water. I remember <laughs> well, my colleague, the cameraman, he had a phrase, sneaky like a snake. And what he meant, <laughs> just slip into the water so you don't make any noise. And then we'd almost got into absolutely the right position for a mother and calf. And they were 200 yards ahead of us, coming towards us. I thought, yes, yes, we're finally going to get this. No, 100 yards. Yes, yes. We've got to be about 20 yards for it to work. Come to 80 yards, they veer off. Something about that whale, she had realized that we were there and she veered off. I think that maybe whales are particularly sensitive to things on the water surface because if they ever hit something, and there's some pretty big logs and trees out there, if they ever hit something like that, it would do them massive damage if they were going fast. So they're very sensitive to anything that's in the water in front of them. I think accidentally you, you could get badly hurt, but never on purpose. Yeah. What about killer whales, John? Have you filmed them? Yes, um, I have. <laughs> I say yes because I was once on a... You're sounding very cautious. No, 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 no. It's no. I'll tell you what it is. Is I sort of have filmed them in a terribly amateur way when I should have been filming them professionally. I had picked up a boat. I thought I'll go ahead of the crew and we'll pick up this boat in La Paz, which is in southern Baja, uh, California, Mexico, basically. And we'll go north and meet the crew in Loreto, which is halfway up the peninsula of, of Baja, California. And because I'll be there two days early, I will be prepared and I'll know everything and I'll be able to help the crew as they come in. So I did that when I was with the scientist. And as we were going up that trip, six pods of killer whales, orcas, started bow riding with us. Uh, six, oh. six families. And the scientist said to me, I have never seen this in 14 years. You know, That's incredible. So how many whales I, are we talking about? Like, like talking five or six per family? Yes, maybe uh, 45, That's something incredible. like that. And, they, and for two hours, the uh, young were jumping out of the water behind a, a little dinghy that we were training behind the main boat. And they were all around us. I didn't have a professional film crew. With me. Isn't it always the way you wait for <laughs> a pod of killer whales oh, to come along and you, and you haven't got the camera crew there and there come sick families. And yes. Did you have any photographs to prove your story? Correct? Oh, yeah. Well, I had an amateur sort of video camera, which <laughs> I did some stuff on. But, but uh, you know, that's the story of filming. It's about the things you do get, not the things you don't get. So would you have uh, at any stage got into the water with a killer whale. I want to talk to you about an interview I did with some cameraman who have done so, but I want to know if, if you have done that. No, I haven't personally, but um, I was with a cameraman, Rick Rosenhall, who did. Um, and um, and also I know another cameraman, a Norwegian cameraman, who, who went in with them at night in, in a Norwegian field. And I think, you know, it's, it's not... I mean, the, the things that will kill you in the water at night are nothing to do with whale they're to do with getting lost in the current and not being able to find yes. your recovery boat um and so you're thinking about so many other things but these animals are usually focused on the prey they're trying to catch um mm. and are not either interested in you or or even if they went 
up to you. They wouldn't hurt you. Well, I, I, I recall a conversation that I had with two gentlemen, Doug Allen and Mike Degree, both uh, f- film uh, cameramen, but they were doing underwater sequences of killer whales for Life on Earth over 30 years ago. And they were the, the, the chaps who were responsible for that amazing footage that we've seen of killer whales beaching themselves and teaching their calves how to lift seal pups yeah, that's the beach of Valdez, Valdez yeah. I think, in Argentina, isn't it? Argent- in Argentina. So it's a, it's incredible footage. But I remember interviewing them for the Natural History Programme on Radio 4 and sitting in a studio. They were able to just evoke what it was like when the two of them, first of all, are filming this on the beach and observing the behaviour. Obviously, scientists had tipped them off and, and they went and they watched this with astonishment. And then they got to the stage where the two of them were, have done their week or two weeks filming. And they realize, well, the shot that they don't have is a shot in the water as the killer wheel comes up onto the beach and uh, beaches itself, grabs the pup and then and then lifts itself off again. And I can't remember. I think I remember asking who did it. And I think they flipped a coin for it. But but can you imagine um, uh, as as one of them decides to slip off the boat, as you say, slippy, snaky, sneaky into the water? as a killer whale adult is deciding it's going to beach. And um, I think it might have been Mike Degree who did it. And and he, he explained how they were able to tell that they were after pups, they weren't after adults, so he felt he would have been safe in the water in front of this charging, enormous whale. Um, and and he s- described the sensation of feeling the wave, the bow wave underwater come towards him, or, and the whale stopped had a good look at him, swam around him, and continued on its way up the beach. Now, I think that must have taken enormous courage, and and he got they got amazing sequences out of that, of course. Yes, that sounds right, though, that the whale knows. A lot of animals like that have no context, and they know more than you think. Uh, even great white sharks have um, not been in the water with a great white shark, or at least not knowingly, perhaps. I didn't see it. Um, but... Um, uh, I, we've got footage on pole cameras of great white sharks uh, being rubbed by tuna uh, on the on the surface and being um, mobbed by seals as they come to the surface. You know, in the same way that you perhaps see a, um, crows mobbing a bird of prey, you see seals mobbing a great white shark, and uh, they do that because they know the context. If you can see a great white shark, it's probably not going to kill you. Because the way they hunt is by barreling up from a few hundred feet down at a great speed. So if they're on the surface, they're not in a situation where they're going to attack. So the point is that all these animals know the context and, you know, you hope they do anyway. So uh, there are situations where you can be filming near them like that. Um, obviously, always respectful of the animal itself. Which I think brings us full circle, John. Um, I opened by saying, that both of us, I think, try to give our children experiences of wildlife and the natural world. I mentioned that I was going to South Africa Christmas, and I have already booked uh, a trip for us to go out and get into a cage and observe great white sharks in the wild. So uh, I'm not telling my children too much about that one, but they are all booked and we're all getting into wetsuits and hopefully we're all going to do it. We fascinated to know how you get on. Well, we'd slip sneaky. What? What did you say? S- sneaky like a snake. 
That's from sneaky. David Wright. He's a sneaky, sneaky like a snake into the water. That's the advice for my children. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll have a cage in that situation. <laughs>